Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Especially if you're grading on the curve that the past few years have provided us. Although I will admit that lately I've been alternately annoyed and unsettled by the algorithm that a certain streaming service uses to guess what programs I would like to watch next. I'm annoyed when it guesses wrong, because it's an inconvenience, but I'm unsettled when it gets it right, especially if it's in ways that are somewhat unflattering to my personal taste. Let me give you an example of each. In the Recommended Movies for You section, all it wants to suggest right now is terrible Christmas movies. And yeah, last month, I watched a lot of terrible Christmas movies. But guess what last month was? December. Come on, algorithm. Use context clues. Christmas is over. Unless you're going by like a 12 Days of Christmas type thing. Which frankly always seemed a little bit iffy to me. I mean, if Jerry in Accounts Receivable is like, Guys, it's my birthday week, I think everybody rolls their eyes a little bit. But Jesus gets to take almost two weeks? I think we ought to hold the Prince of Peace to a higher standard than that. So on the one hand, I got all these terrible Christmas movies clogging up my January movie recommendations. Which is annoying. But, on the plus side, it's a little bit comforting to think that, well, if the algorithm's still making that kind of a mistake, they're obviously not ready to take over the world yet. On the other side of the equation, I finished watching all the available episodes of a show on that streaming service, and it just automatically started playing a different series that it thought I might want to watch. It just went ahead and assumed, hey Hub, probably you want to watch a terrible urban fantasy show with all expositional dialogue, awful writing, and the worst acting that you've ever seen from performers who kept all of their clothes on. And I was like, no. Yes. So, I've been watching Shadowhunters, and I've been kind of enjoying it, but it's really bad. Like, so bad, I feel like I should be watching it through a hole in a sheet so that God can't see how bad my taste is. But then I remember the whole 12-day birthday thing, and I'm like, whatever. Anyway, Shadow Hunters aside, we've got a comic book to talk about. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by David Huser. Steve? Namor, Patsy, and Val. Pick your favorite defender, pal. Like John, Paul, George, and Ringo, you can't go wrong. It's like always winning at bingo. Steve is a wizard, like George, a mystic. Ringo and Hellcat are both optimistic. Submariner and John are a bit capricious and loco, but I've never seen John in the ocean or Namor with Yoko. But like so many teens of all generations who fell in love with the Beatles' gyrations, it's obvious who is fab and gear supernaturally. It's Paul of the Beatles, and for the Defenders, it's Valkyrie. So tell us about all the Defenders, gang, but mostly about that wielder of dragon fang, who once drew her sword and gave us a chopped bus. Go ahead, let's hear that synopsis. Thanks, David! 
Defenders, number 111, September 1982. Fathers and Daughters. Written by J.M. DeMatteis and Mark Gruenwald. Drawed by Don Perlin. Inked by Andy Mushinsky. Lettered by Shelley Lefferman. Colored by George Russos. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive Lineup. Hellcat. Doctor Strange. The Incredible Hulk. Son of Satan. Namor the Submariner. And... Nighthawk. Maybe. Previously in the Defenders. An indeterminate but seemingly brief amount of comic book time ago, billionaire do well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, unnecessarily sacrificed his life to help thwart a misguided nationalist who was obsessed with Roman centurions from murdering Russia. Our titular non-team was pretty bummed out about the death of their non-teammate, but they had little time to dwell on it, because they were quickly immersed in a complicated scheme to rescue Valkyrie from Niflheim and stop Amora the Enchantress from marrying a bad photocopy of Jesus or something. During the course of this adventure, Son of Satan, Namor, and the Hulk got separated from the rest of their party and lost in another dimension. Once the gang finished retrieving Valkyrie and cock-blocking C-Jesus, Steve went dimension-hopping looking for his missing teammates, and was startled to find them hanging with Nighthawk, who was wearing a slightly different uniform but seemed remarkably not dead. Back in our hero's home dimension, Hellcat, aka Patsy Walker, was pretty bummed out that as far as she knew, Kyle Richmond was still dead. Her housekeeper, Dolly Donahue, tried to cheer Patsy up by showing her old photos of her mother, who had attempted to sell Patsy's soul to demons, and father, who had abandoned Patsy when she was a child, but oddly this failed to raise the cat-costumed crime-fighter's spirits. Thinking about her parents reminded Patsy that in a relatively recent adventure she had run afoul of Satan, who had informed her that he was her real dad. The devil had later claimed that he had probably been lying about his paternal revelation to mess with his son Damon, who had a crush on Patsy, but he also mentioned that he might be lying about having lied. Hellcat dried her tears and resolved to track down her deadbeat dad and determine once and for all whether or not he was the devil. Meanwhile, in an alternate version of Washington, D.C., a limousine pulled up to the White House. Everyone was terrified of the president, who turned out to be... Kyle Richmond? Gadzooks! What nightmarish version of the United States would elect a president as incompetent as Kyle? To what exotic realm will Patsy's dad quest take her? And was Satan telling the truth about having lied, or was he lying when he said that he hadn't told the truth? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No comment. Ohio, and... Yes. Patsy Walker is writing in her diary about her quest to find her father, Josh Walker. She gives a brief recap of how when she was a little kid her dad walked out on her and her asshole mom, and how he might be the devil. Then she gives us the details of her recent dad quest. She started searching for her dad a little while ago, but hit a bunch of dead ends. Eventually, she managed to get in touch with a guy named Eddie Fielder, who claimed that he used to work with the Josh Walker. She took a bus out to Greentown, Ohio, to meet with Eddie. Eddie met her at the bus station, and they went back to his apartment to talk. Patsy asked what Eddie remembered about Josh, and Eddie was like, We worked together for about three years, but there was a lot I didn't know about him. 
He was a quiet guy who kept to himself a lot. Patsy was like, oh, like a serial killer? Or possibly the devil? Eddie was like, no, more like a guy who had maybe abandoned his family and didn't want to talk about it, maybe. But also, he was really funny, and I liked him. From what she remembers of her childhood, Patsy also liked her dad and thought he was funny. So she figured this might be a good lead. She was like, hey, Eddie, did he ever do that one joke where he jangles his keys in front of you for a few seconds? I remember that one used to really crack me up. Eddie didn't remember that one. He offered Patsy a beer, or, quote, Dr. Pepper, unquote, but Patsy knew better than to accept a drink pronounced with audible quotation marks from a stranger. She thanked Eddie for his limited help and went outside. For the next hour or so, Patsy wandered the streets of Greentown, lost in thought. She wasn't watching where she was going, so she ended up bumping into a dandified fop with an elaborately waxed mustache and knocking him to the ground. Patsy apologized to the fop, who dusted off his three-piece suit, picked up his cane and robin's egg blue bowler, and introduced himself as Nicholas Eblis, a retired professor of theology. Patsy thought Mr. Eblis was a totally unsuspicious and trustworthy-seeming normal Ohioan, so when he mentioned that the boarding house where he was staying had a vacancy, she decided to go with him. Meanwhile, in another dimension, the guy in the modified Nighthawk suit leads Hulk, Steve, Damon, and Namor to a high-tech underground bunker in the middle of a forest. The defenders want to know where they are and why Kyle isn't dead. The Nighthawk-dressed guy is like, Wow, those are some excellent questions that I'm not going to answer. Instead, I'd like to invite you to look over there. The gang looks in the direction that the purported Nighthawk is indicating and sees that restrained to one of those fancy science gurneys that often pop up in superhero comics is none other than their old foe, Hyperion. Hyperion, the asshole ancient Greek titan of the sun who once mind-controlled Wonder Girl into dating him? No, that's a different Hyperion. Hyperion, the asshole ancient Greek titan of the sun who, along with his siblings, concocted a scheme to get younger, which ended up costing the lives of several million aliens? No, that's a retconned version of the first Hyperion I asked about. I think. This Hyperion is the D-minus knockoff of Superman to Nighthawk's D-minus knockoff of Batman. Only, he's evil, which I guess makes him a knockoff of Ultraman, the evil version of Superman. Either way, he's a real jerk. The defenders are appropriately surprised to see him strapped to a science gurney. Back in Patsy's journal entry, after settling in at the boarding house, Patsy changed into her superhero duds and headed out to investigate Eddie Fielder to make sure he was on the up and up. She started feeling a little loopy, but figured that swinging around town in the night air might clear her head a little. At first, it seemed to work. She did some flips and jumped off rooftops while ruminating about how far she'd come as a superhero. After a little while, the freewheeling feline arrived at Eddie's apartment. Only, it wasn't Eddie's apartment. She was back outside the boarding house. Huh. Suddenly, Patsy's vision went all funhouse mirror, and she found herself disoriented to the point that she could no longer stand. Nicholas Eblis and the other boarders at the house, who appeared to be, respectively, a middle-aged Victorian lady, a somewhat disheveled matron, and an old sea captain, came out onto the porch and started laughing at Patsy before eventually carrying her inside. Patsy passed the fuck out. 
An indeterminate amount of time later, she woke up on a couch in the common area with all of the boarders huddled around her expressing concern. Despite the fact that she was wearing her Hellcat costume, Nicholas recognized her and called her Patsy while he was inquiring as to her well-being. Something seemed a little bit off, but Patsy wasn't sure exactly what it was, until the appearance of Nicholas and his companions started shifting, and they revealed themselves to be Satan and three of his demons. Honestly, would have been more surprising if that one dude actually had been a sea captain. Satan was like, Hey Patsy, I'm your dad. As soon as he said that, Patsy freaked out and beat the shit out of all the demons. Hooray! Then she started wailing on the erstwhile Mr. Eblis. As he was being pummeled, the devil was like, Atta girl, this just proves that you're my daughter. You think a regular style lady could beat up me and my demon buddies? I don't know. I mean, you once lost a fiddle contest that you yourself were judging, so maybe? Apparently Patsy was unfamiliar with the oeuvre of Hank Williams Jr. because she was at least momentarily convinced by Satan's argument. She found herself changing into the same demonic cat lady form that Satan had turned her into the last time they tussled. The now more appropriately named Hellcat picked the devil up over her head and made as though she was going to either throw him through the side of the house or maybe do a gorilla press slam. But after holding him there for a while, she just kind of put him down. Once she did, Patsy turned back into her regular human self and was like, Nah, you're not my dad. For some reason, I am now totally sure that I am a human from Earth. I hear you, Patsy. You and me both. When he heard Patsy say that, the devil stood up, brushed himself off, and was like, Yup, you sure are. That was just a test. If you had given in to your dark side and gorilla press slammed me like you were going to, then your soul would have been damned to hell forever. Wait. Does that mean that the Ultimate Warrior is in hell because of all those gorilla press slams he did on people? Nah, I'm sure he's there for all the racism and homophobia. Anyway, the devil went on and was like, Hey, I'm glad you passed that test. I think you're a pretty neat lady. Let's go down to hell for a minute and I'll give you a pep talk. So they went down to hell and Satan gave Patsy a little pep talk. He started off with a bit of exposition because, I mean... He is still a villain, and explained how in addition to being Satan, he was also all the other versions of Satan that exist in the Marvel Universe, and are usually depicted as separate entities. You know, Mephisto, Satanish, Thog, Asmodeus, etc. He once gave a pretty similar speech to his son Damon, although in that speech, he was explicit about the fact that he is also God and Jesus, whereas in this speech, he only kind of hinted at that a little. He also brought up the fact that people created him with their belief and shitty behavior. But it's cool because if there wasn't shitty behavior, then good wouldn't be as awesome or something. It was all very metaphysical and deep, which is to say, mostly nonsense. Patsy was like, okay, cool, but uh, why are you telling me all this? The devil was like, well, like I said, you're a pretty neat lady. Most people couldn't beat their dark side the way you did. I respect that. Also, remember how that bald space lady took away your psychic powers a while ago? Well, you still have them. Patsy was like, okay, good to know. They went to a demonic merry-go-round propelled by damned souls forced to crawl naked through the mud. Satan continued his little speech. He was like, look, Patsy, 
The point is, you're very impressive, and I'm a big fan. Incidentally, I'm also a big fan of Steve, but, uh, don't tell him that. That guy needs an ego boost like I need a third horn. Anyway, not to blow up his spot, but my son Damon has a pretty big crush on you, and I think that made him a better person, which, despite the fact that I'm the devil, I'm in favor of. Because I'm also maybe God. So I felt like I owed you a favor. Here's the deal. You're not my daughter, and you are awesome. Okay, I'm going to dump you back in Ohio again, and next time we see each other, I'm going to go back to being totally evil and mean to you, and all that stuff, because I am the devil, and I have to keep up appearances. Cool? Patsy was like, uh, yeah, I guess. Satan teleported Patsy back to Earth, and was like, oh, I also put the knowledge of where your real dad is into your head. You're welcome. Okay, bye. You totally suck and I hate you. JK. Patsy was a little disoriented, but she felt better than she had in a long time. She made a beeline towards Eddie Fielder's apartment, where she found that Eddie was having a clandestine meeting with a pipe-smoking, mustachioed man wearing a sweater. She listened outside the window just long enough to hear that the mustache man was named Josh. Patsy startled the men by climbing through the window. She asked Mr. Mustache if he was Josh Walker, and when he confirmed that he was, she removed her mask and introduced herself as his daughter. They cried and hugged. Josh explained that he had left because Patsy's mom was such a dick, but he never stopped loving Patsy and missing her. A few years ago, he married a nice lady who had a bunch of kids who he was sure would be excited to meet their older sister. Josh took Patsy out to the farm he now lived on and showed her the spare room. Then Patsy started making the diary entry that has made up the bulk of this issue. Patsy keeps writing until Josh tells her that he's made her favorite meal from when she was a kid. Grilled cheese with bacon and a chocolate milk. Patsy is like, Yay! That totally makes up for 20 plus years of neglect. Let's eat! Aww. Meanwhile, in the Oval Office in another dimension, President Kyle is looking apprehensive and kinda out of it. Like, more out of it than usual. Perhaps the reason for his unease is the strange visitor with a short-sleeved suit of armor and elaborate facial hair who stands opposite him. Or maybe he's just understandably freaked out to be living in a country where Kyle Richmond is the president. Either way, a caption informs us that the intimidating stranger is named Overmind. To be continued. So, I don't know much about this Overmind guy but here's my guess as to his origin. When he was a kid, his mom was constantly scolding him for being in her way and being generally underfoot. Then one day, he had had enough. He stood on a stalagmite as lightning flashed ominously in the background and boldly declared, I'll show her, I'll show them all. I will never be underfoot again. In fact, I'll be the total opposite of underfoot. And on that day, the villain known as Overmind was born. Either that or he's some kind of alien gladiator who had the collective minds of his entire species dumped into his brain. It's probably one of those. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty nice. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How is it treating you so far? Um, pretty good. 
let's see, this is the second day. <laughs> right. And um, so far, so good. Yeah, I am going into this with guarded optimism. If I'm honest with myself, a little more guarded than optimistic, but still, you know. Yeah, same. I am reminded of the telegram that Dorothy Parker sent to Robert Benchley in December of 1929. Are you familiar mm. with this? No, but I bet it's clever because most things that Dorothy Parker has written down seem to be pretty clever. Yeah, she sent a telegram that said, you get over here this instant and explain why they are having another year. <laughs> and uh, that seems kind of apropos. Not bad. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? I do. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Overall, I would say that I enjoyed this comic book. I like to learn more about Patsy's character. She's one of my favorite defenders. And I think the first thing that struck me about it was it felt like kind of a different comic book in sense of the uh, the art. It felt like a different comic book to me in terms of a number of things. I really loved this comic. You sounded like you had some reservations, maybe. I think the main reservation that I had is it seems like the whole Satan thing conflicted a little bit with the way that Satan was explained to us before, where before it was based in, I guess, theology of, you know, well, there's God, so there has to be a devil. And now it's based in, well, no, 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 no. There's just a devil because people are a bunch of assholes and Satan is the collective asshole of the universe. I think he does make some nod to the fact that he's also God at some point. I don't think it directly contradicts that previous establishment, but I can also see where you would get that. Honestly, the whole revelation that the devil is also four other devils or five other devils in this one, and also God and also man's collective inhumanity to man, kind of undercuts him as a villain, I think, in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, but especially because as like he's supposed to be the baddest villain there is, mm -hmm. right? And he's like, okay, Patsy and Doctor Strange, you guys are fucking rad, <laughs> so you get a pass. And that's not something that the biggest baddest villain does. Well, he said he does end it with like, you get a pass this time, but next time we meet, we'll have to pretend we don't like each other again. Right. Yeah, it does seem to lower the stakes a little bit and the stakes for this issue. That being said, like I said. I really loved this issue, and both the artwork and the lettering, having the entire story told in handwritten captions of Patsy's journal, really made it feel like a more focused and personal story, and really more intimate in a lot of ways, and especially with the big, sweeping, complicated epics that we've been getting in both series that we cover lately, I found that incredibly refreshing and really well done for the most part. Yeah, I agree. I enjoyed it too. It was an adjustment getting used to reading this cursive script. It was really well rendered and consistent, but mm -hmm. I, I'm so used to, you know, sans serif fonts that I felt like I had to concentrate extra hard on the issue. I did too at first, but I, I was able to get past that and then started reading it for the most part regular. But it did force you to pay a little bit more attention to it in a way that I overall appreciated. And it did, like I said, make it seem like a more personal story. And I liked getting that. 
it was just nice. There is a different inker in this issue, which I think is responsible for the change in the artwork. It's a guy named Andy Mushinsky, who I'm not all that familiar with, but he did an amazing job. Like, it looks gorgeous. Yeah, I agree. I It had this kind of familiar feel to it for me, so I, I looked him up, and uh, he did a bunch of the uh, G.I. Joe comics that I read when I was a kid, it turns out. Yeah, I saw that too. I haven't read those G.I. Joe comics. Are they drawn like this? Uh, no, they're pretty different. They kind of keep with the style of the animated show. Mm. But uh, yeah, there, there, was, there was a similar kind of feel to them. Cool. I think maybe my favorite character in this book was Satan's guise as Nicholas Eblis. Theology professor, <laughs> retired. And Patsy's response to that, Patsy Walker, clumsy person. Ah, uh, it was delightful, that whole exchange. That whole exchange was great. I must say, part of me was a little bit annoyed at Patsy for not picking up that this guy was the devil immediately, because I did. Just from, like, the way he's dressed as a, I don't know, like, pastel, early 20th century dandy. I'm like, his potential occupations are pretty limited. I did make a list of potential jobs that a guy dressed like that might have, but at the very top of that list is definitely Satan. If nothing else, that combination of that particular type of mustache and the bowler hat. The fact that it was a baby blue bowler hat really did seem to... Like, because if it's just the mustache and that bowler hat, then he could just be, you know, a Victorian dad who doesn't want children to have imaginations. I think the hue of his whole getup, which is like shades, like you said, pastels, Easter eggy, kind of lavenders and blues and everything. The degree of confidence that it takes to pull that outfit off does imply some sort of supernatural something. Well, so here's the list of potential occupations he might have that I made. Number one with a bullet, obviously, Satan. He could also be selling band equipment to small-town Iowans. Mm -hmm. He could be a spokesperson for a chain of old-timey ice cream parlors. Mustache might need to be a little thicker for that, but I see where you're going. Well, speaking of needing a slightly thicker mustache for the job, he could be a Pringles salesman. <laughs> he just needs the monocle. <laughs> Wait, the Pringles guy has a monocle? Oh, in my mind, that's probably not the case. Though. I think I conflated that with uh, Mr. Peanut. Oh, man, what a couple they'd make. Hmm. He could be Paul F. Tompkins. That's another career opportunity. <laughs> or he could be an old-time yell singer. What's an what's a old-time yell singer? Well, like, every singer before Bing Crosby basically just had to be yelling at people. And that's why, like, old-timey recordings are all like, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. Hey, how are you doing there? Ba, ba, ba. Oh, because of the lack of amplification or mm -hmm. microphone? Yeah, they used to yeah. have to yell through, like, those things guys use on rowboats to yell at each other. Megaphone. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, Bing Crosby was, like, the first singer to really make use of the microphone and that was part of why he was such a big sensation because he was the first singer that people didn't feel was like yelling at them and so there was like this intimacy and like so everybody swooned when they heard his voice like oh he's singing me a song but he's not yelling it's like he's in the room with me and he you know had that smooth kind of like doo -doo -doo voice <laughs> that's not how i think of being crosby is sounding but i'll allow it 
that's pretty good. Yeah, no, he was, he was all smooth. He was like, hmm, Babadoo, hey, I'm Bing Crosby. I'm probably a little bit drunk and, you know, maybe beating my kids with a sack of oranges so it won't leave a bruise, but I sound pretty good overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember you telling me about the orange sack beatings. Yeah. I mean, that was his other big innovation. <laughs> that and singing so he's not yelling at people. Uh-huh. So, you know, definitely a mixed bag. And overall, as near as I can tell, a not good person. But uh, mm-hmm. I like that people aren't yelling at me all the time when they sing. Yeah, I like that, too. I don't care for being yelled at. I mean, sometimes it works. Like, with some metal, it's fine that people are yelling at me. Mm-hmm. I prefer to think that they're yelling with me at the man. Right. Oh, right. I hate that man. Yeah, you sure do. Oh, I just thinking about him just steams me up. But, uh, so yeah, those are the potential professions that Nicholas Eblis might have. I spent way too much time trying to work out if his name was an anagram for something. Mm. In part because it misspelled Nicholas, it spells it with an I-S at the end. And so it's like, it must be an anagram for something, but I couldn't really come up with anything. Were you able to? No, no, I, I did have that thought also. And now that you're mentioning it, it occurs to me that there are online anagramizers. I did try running it through that, but it Nothing. puts all the anagrams in like alphabetical order and none of them seem to make any sense. It's possible that there's one in there that I missed. But uh, yeah, no, no dice on that score. What mm. is kind of interesting about the character is he does come back later on as not Satan himself, but one of Satan's employees, a character named Nicholas Eblis, uh, shows up about a year after this as Satan's talent scout who signs bands to contracts. And uh, he works for a company called BLZbub. And that one I was able to figure <laughs> out. <laughs> Corey, that's Beelzebub. I got it. That's, a, that's the devil. It's pretty good. So, uh, yeah, uh, it was an interesting look for that guy. Uh, oh, another potential job he could have. He could be a murderous candy factory owner. How does that? Well, he looks a little like Willy Wonka. He does. I always think of Willy Wonka as the Gene Wilder version. I do, too, but I could see him wearing an outfit like that just from the Roald Dahl book, you know? Yeah, okay. I could see him working in, I don't know, if there's like a, a vintage hat store in Portland. <laughs> I know what you mean, but I, I don't see that going with the pastel. And what do you mean if there's a vintage hat store? I just thought of like three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pastels may be a bit of a stretch, but I, I could see that being a thing. Yeah, but I did appreciate his whole dynamic with Patsy. I liked when they went back to the boarding house and some, all of the other people at the boarding house who we find out later are demons. But I liked how they were all just like, well, is this what people dress like? Is this who people are? Uh, sea captain, old-timey Victorian spinster, and Mrs. Hannigan from Annie? <laughs> like, Yeah, cardigan lady. When I saw that panel, I thought to myself, now there is what should be our avatar for our, uh, our sea captains only account. Oh. But they probably make you use a real picture or something. Yeah, probably. I just like the idea that Satan just has a big prop department and he's like, all right, demons, you're dressing up like humans. Just go in there and grab a costume from, I don't know, backstage at Saturday Night Live or something. 
one of them, I think, should have been dressed like just a giant banana or something, you know? That would have been pleasant. So I really enjoyed the whole Patsy story, and, and there's certainly more to talk about there, but did you want to go into the, the interlude? Sure. There's a couple of little dips into the interlude, or two different interludes, I guess, and they were confusing to me, but we see part of it is Hyperion's here, so I think this is going to be a Squadron Sinister or possibly Squadron Supreme story that we're tying into. And then we see that uh, President Kyle has his own evil mastermind who is pulling the strings behind him. A real Dick Cheney, if you will. <laughs> that is called Overmind. What, what did you think of the interludes? I was a little annoyed by both of them, probably just because they were Kyle-centric, and I sort of had made peace with the idea that Kyle's no longer with us. Mm -hmm. The first one was set up in a really nice way, and we'll probably get to that when we talk about Steel Pies. But uh, I was annoyed by the fact that Kyle's like, yeah, 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 I know you guys got lots of questions, but we, we just got more important shit to do. And he goes and shows them Hyperion. And my first thought was, they're just taking at his word that this is Kyle. They can't see this dude's face. Yeah, he's got a Nighthawk costume, so they assume that they can trust him. Which, even if it is Kyle, why would they assume that they could trust him? And you see a fair amount of that. You see Patsy just trusting the dude that she shows up to meet at the bus stop, and it works out for her, and I get that she's a superhero and she has powers and all that shit, but at the same time, nine out of ten times, if you show up cold for a Craigslist ad and you go to a dude's apartment with him, I feel like even if you're a superhero, you're gonna end up like, I don't know, strapped to some kind of death laser or with your hands in those weird steel flower pots that suck away your powers or something you know yeah and and i did appreciate that they acknowledged that too as she's kind of thinking to herself huh well might be weird that like he might just be a total creeper who wants to bring a young woman back to his apartment but eh, let's go see what we can see so she does think it through I and mean, she does think it through but then decides to do the thing that she would have done if she hadn't thought it through at all mm -hmm. and I'm glad she gives us the background that, like, no, he was a sweet guy, and I could tell he was on the up and up. I'm glad it worked out for her, don't get me wrong. But especially when he's, like, sitting down on the bed in his studio apartment with her. Like, why didn't they go to a coffee shop? She should foot the bill for that. You know, I know she's the one who traveled, but she's also the one who's looking for information. You offer to take him to a restaurant or a coffee shop or something, you know? And... Even once we are supposed to be put at ease about this dude, he offers her a beer or a, quote, Dr. Pepper, unquote. <laughs> the quotes around the word Dr. Pepper, I'm like, oh, you never take a drink from somebody who says quotes around it. Reminds me of when when I was young and, and hanging out with some friends and, and there was this, this kind of creepy guy trying to get us to come back to his apartment. He's like, I got a fridge full of stuff, guys. Oh. And we're like, oh, that's cool. No, thanks. It reminded me of when me and my friend were uh, underage drinking and walking around drinking, gosh, it was Midorian Sprite, maybe something like that. A terrible, oh. almost all sugar oh. alcohol drink. But yeah. we had worked out that if anybody asked us what it was, we were just going to say it was Ecto Cooler. Gatorade? No, Ecto Cooler. Oh, is that, that not a Gatorade flavor? No, it's a high C that is a Ghostbusters tie-in. Oh, dang. 
that was bright green. And so uh, one person did ask, and we in unison looked at each other, looked back at him and went, Ecto Cooler! And I'm sure we were not fooling anybody, but uh, the good thing is nobody gave a shit. Mm. But yeah, it did strike me as like, what, what, what's in that? Dr. Pepper. Yeah, that scene was interesting to me too, where it made me regret a little bit we don't have the timestamp category because it had those old timey, by which I guess I mean 1980s, beer cans. Mm-hmm. that They're like not tapered at the top. They're just like a, a total a cylinder. Mm-hmm. And I think they had like the, the pull tab, you know, the kind that I think now you only got on tiny cans of V8 or tomato juice or something. You know what I mean? Where it's like you mm-hmm. pull off the triangular tape piece of foil at the top to drink it. Yeah. Old timey beers. Mm. I only know those from museums and such. Well, yeah, that's you're somewhat younger than me. So, yeah, you know, that three year gulf <laughs> between us. is It's a real generation gap. Yeah, sometimes pretty significant. <laughs> well, what did you think of the other interlude, the one in the Oval Office with confused President Kyle and Overmind, his personal Dick Cheney? Yeah, I mean, I hate to judge a book by its cover, but Overmind seems like a real jerk. What? Just from the way he's drawn, you know? Oh, so you don't think I should uh, turn my beard into flame shapes? So that it matches the rest of my flame-shaped helmet? I don't know why this just popped into my head, but seeing you dressing up as Guy Fieri for Halloween would be really amazing. He doesn't have a flame-shaped beard. I guess he just wears flame shirts and has frosted tips. Right. Which, uh, I don't know. Something to look into. Okay, well, maybe for your birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Taking me to Flavortown for my birthday? (laughs) Hop in, buddy! Is that what Guy Fieri sounds like? I don't know. Probably. No, he's not as, like, gravelly. Oh, uh... Hop in, buddy! We're going to Flavortown! It's me, Guy Fieri! That's spot on. I got some... some Oompa Doomp sauce! Put it on your burger! Oh, man. Oh, that's a delight. Oh, I'm sorry. I just stepped out for a second. When I got back, there looked like some guy with flames on his shirt was leaving. Did I miss anything? Oh, nothing. Nothing for you to worry about. Okay. I was happy for Patsy that she was able to reconcile with her dad, but I gotta say I was a little bit annoyed that that was all it took. You know? Like, I think I was more mad at Patsy's dad than she was. Yeah, I had the same feeling of, you know, how can 20-something years of abandonment be assuaged by... A bacon and grilled cheese sandwich and some chocolate milk, although that does sound pretty tasty. But my thinking was, you know, she basically just had this whole experience where by letting go of stuff, she kind of regained her superpowers and and Mm. this massive jolt of of goodness into her life. And so she's probably just kind of riding that wave of goodness and, you know, kind of leveraged it into forgiveness for what otherwise might have been a really tricky proposition. Yeah. I get why he would leave her mom. Her mom seems like a real piece of shit. And he does offer the reasoning that, well, she was the money maker in the family. I couldn't compete with that. So I just couldn't be around her anymore. I had to leave. Okay, I totally get all that. You could write. You could call. You could make some attempt to outreach. Like, there's nothing that says you couldn't check back in. 
yeah, I got a, a little bit of an Odin vibe. <laughs> totally. <laughs> He's like, hey, I totally considered looking for you, but I was busy, so, you know. <laughs> Look, Asgard, I mean America, is a pretty big place. I figured you were around somewhere. I think really working in his benefit is the fact that she just found out that her dad wasn't actual Satan. So, like... That lowers the bar. Yeah, yeah, something fierce. And so, like, she's like, hey, happy with what I can get. Hey, made me a sandwich. Didn't try to either buy or sell my soul. Good enough. Real potential misstep there, too, when he was like, so, do you still like the things you did when you were six? <laughs> and then yeah. she just totally went with it. So, you're a 23-year-old woman now, probably? I assume you still love chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been a stretch, the dinosaur thing, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I never had a, a chocolate milk and a, and a bacon and a grilled cheese sandwich all together, but uh, I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, no, that does sound pretty good. Yeah, I wish I still ate bacon. You could, you could do it with some uh, turkey bacon. I made a salmon chowder with turkey bacon. Mm. It came out really good. I wonder if the uh, plant-based guys are doing bacon these days. That's better. It's got to be tough just because... Like, I don't mind the textured vegetable protein, but with bacon specifically, even if you're doing turkey bacon, such a big part of what bacon is is just its high fat content. Mm -hmm. If you're making a bacon substitute that doesn't have a high fat content, it's going to be a lot different cooking with it. And if you make one that does, people are not going to buy it, probably. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, we shouldn't. We don't want to. Impossible Foods and others are, are probably listening to the show, so we, we don't want to give away all of the knowledge. That's true. Our policy towards dispensing knowledge has always been to do so very sparingly. Mm -hmm. It's like an Easter egg hunt. If you sift through our entire back catalog and take the third word from every minutia segment, there is actually one piece of genuine information. So, speaking of potential Patsy dads, we do find out that Satan isn't her dad. And as I said, it does lower his villain quotient somewhat, knowing going into it that he's actually God and he loves his kid and all that shit. But he does raise his villain quotient somewhat when he is interacting with Patsy when they go back to the torture merry-go-round that they visited with Son of Satan. And there's one specific incident in that that, like, made me really go, oh shit, this devil guy really is a dick. Hmm. The merry-go-round is being operated by naked, tortured souls who are forced to push the merry-go-round with these wooden logs that are coming out of the side of it. Kind of like Conan did in the movie. I mean, it wasn't a mm -hmm. demon merry-go-round, but, uh, you know... Same idea. Yeah, similar. Yep. And as demoralizing as that is, it's got to be way more demoralizing when Satan and Patsy fly off on their little merry-go-round rides that they were doing, like Mary Poppins style. So it's mm -hmm. like, wait, I've been pushing this thing around and it has the power to move all by itself the whole time? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably one of the whole points of it, right? I often thought what would be most hellish for me would be if I, you know, go to hell and then just have to, like, do a, a task that I know is pointless endlessly. Yeah, and especially if it's, I don't know, circus-themed. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that would make it terrible. Yeah, I've often thought that, like, uh, 
my first office job was for a, a forklift company in the risk management department doing like a legal filing and typing like on an actual typewriter, mailing labels and things like that. And like I could tell they had a budget to hire a young person, but they didn't really have anything that needed doing. So it was just all busy work. Can you go down to the warehouse and just like move these boxes of folders around? <laughs> yeah, okay. Then you found out later they didn't even have forklifts. Yeah, I used to actually, instead of filing these, they're like legal cases for the whole point of the company was people would do stupid shit and get terrible injuries using these forklifts. Mm -hmm. And then they would go to court and this whole department's existence was to be like, no, these guys were fucking stupid. We're not paying their medical bills, mm. right? And so I would sit there and I would just read reports and oh my gosh. They're like, yeah, so-and-so lost his leg when, you know, Larry jumped off the shelf and landed on the top to surprise Bob as a prank. Oh, jeez. You know, which caused him to hit the lever, That this awful thing. Oh, my gosh. Were any of the people trying to use the forklifts as actual forks? Like, were there any, like, spaghetti-related incidents? No, I don't remember that. Mostly it was just people, like, goofing off and then getting hurt. I drove a forklift for a little bit for a job that I had. I wasn't licensed to, and I wasn't supposed to drive the forklift, but I did. It was pretty fun. I wasn't great at it. I could have very easily ended up in that book. I'm so glad that you didn't. Me too. I forgot what we were talking about. That's okay. Oh yeah, Satan's pointless job for the carousel people. Yeah, this has gotta, gotta really uh, take the starch out of that guy's shirt that he's not allowed to wear. I, I don't know. My notes on this were, oh, Satan, you big old softy. Because his main point of why Patsy gets a, a pass and gets all her powers back is because she's the first person that his kid had a big crush on. He says that she taught him how to love, but she didn't. Like, that would happen if they had a relationship. And that I would fucking get. But she's not even like his daughter-in-law. She's just a dude that his son has a crush on. Mm -hmm. So... It is a little bit of a stretch. He does at one point say that, like, you are a one in a million person, which even in 1982, I think the world had a population of about, like, six and a half billion. So that's still 6,500 people. Hmm. I don't think he gives that toward all 6,500 of them. Oh, no. It's just a figure of speech. I mean, math's probably not Beelzebub's big thing. I beg to differ. My experience with math leads me to believe that it is 100% Satan's thing. Well, there's a bunch more stuff to talk about, but I think most of what I wanted to talk about is going to come up in the minutiae. Is there anything you want to hit before we head into that? No, I, I think it'll all come up in the details. Yes, famously, that is where the devil is. So, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category would you like to start us off with? Well, since we uh, talked about the artwork at the top, why don't we start with panels? All right. I gotta say, this was an easy choice for me. The art throughout this comic was beautiful, but my favorite panel by far was the first panel. Patsy as Hellcat, a larger image of her looking over her shoulder as she writes in her diary, and... They are just both stunningly drawn, and everything about that panel is just great and really tells you what kind of a story it's going to be. 
and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I appreciated that one too. Really kind of gets at the where she's trying to figure out a little bit in this issue too, like, you know, who is Patsy Walker? Mm-hmm. Like, how much of that is, is Hellcat? How much of that is the experiences I had with Moon Dragon? You say that like... Uh... I said that like Jim Gaffigan says Hot Pockets. That's what it was. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I was a little bit confused about that. Yeah, you sang it like the Hot Pockets song. <laughs> that was a weird choice. Kinda. I really liked the panel on page 12 where Patsy is pointing at Satan and he's still got his lavender suit on but has removed his bowler hat. Mm. She's saying, you, you, you. I liked that one a lot too. I like a couple pages later when she socks him in the face and you get... Paul F. Tompkins, Satan, having a big old shiner and a sweaty forehead. I thought that was pretty good. I also really, really liked when everything is all hazy and wavy and she goes back to the boarding house and sees the, I don't know, small acting troupe of demons in all of their finest sea captain and old Victorian spinster regalia. But it's all wavy and distorted and what's going on? Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that panel a lot, too. Yeah, the art in here is, is there's so much good stuff. I think that one that I mentioned before is probably my favorite, but in close contention is on page 17, and it's the one after they uh, take their uh, satanic merry-go-round demon dogs for a stroll. It's that, you know, real, like, descent into hell look where there's flames and smoke and Patsy's like, ah, shit! <laughs> And Satan's like, yeah. Except for in that panel, it is actually their descent into Ohio from hell. Descent into Ohio. Let's transition into an art-adjacent category. Sartorially speaking, what fashion in this issue did you find particularly worthy of note? So we did already talk a bit about uh, the dapper Mr. Nicholas Elbis. Theology professor retired. Mm -hmm. But yeah, his whole getup was pretty classy. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Even going down to having a cane that he carries around for fashion purposes. Solid, consistent look. Yep. I was pretty impressed by uh, Patsy's uh, dad, Josh Walker's confusing seasonal sweater. Yeah. I'm not sure what season it was for. It was like a Christmas sweater, maybe, that was in Halloween colors. But it was a very dad look, if nothing else. And really, driving that home was the pipe that he was smoking, too. It's Mm -hmm. gotta maybe rub salt in the wounds a little bit to have such a stereotypical dad for a dad who abandoned you when you were a child. Like, Mm -hmm. to find him and just be like, wait, you couldn't be my dad, but you're this much of a dad? And then on top of that, that he's got this whole new family with children. Yeah. And she's put in this position of like, hey, the kids are super excited to meet their long lost half sister, I guess. Mm -hmm. And she has to be like, okay, that's cool. I'm excited too, I guess. At least you're not the devil, I guess. But I will say it is a nice sweater. You're right. It is a confusing pattern. It is orange and white. And across the center of it and going onto the sleeves is like a Toblerone pattern of interlocking triangles looks a little bit like maybe he's could be in a deck of playing cards but uh (laughs) overall good sweater Mm -hmm. good dad material we talked a little bit about overmind flame beard Mm -hmm. 
I guess it's more like the teeth of a circular saw than flames necessarily, but it does match the little spikes that are coming off of this weird samurai helmet thing that he's wearing. And then he's got a short-sleeved suit of armor on, maybe? Yeah, really form-fitting, too. I almost wonder if it's, like, not armor, but, like, one of those, like a like a rash guard, like that surfers or jujitsu or MMA people wear, like the super tight thing that's got stuff printed on it huh. to look cool. Maybe it's just a spandex suit that's got, like, this armor pattern on it. Maybe. I don't know a ton about this Overmind guy, but, uh... Looking forward to learning a little bit more about him in the future. Maybe we'll find out he is super into surfing or MMA. I really don't like his beard. That is understandable. I told you about my uh, encounter with competitive beardsmen and that I just generally did not care for them. Oh, yeah, they all came into it when there was like a beard competition yeah. near the bar. Yeah, there something. was a, like a competitive beard growing competition that was near the bar I used to work at and they all came in and I was unimpressed, I must say, with the quality of their characters, although I was impressed by the quality of their beards. Mm. But I wouldn't give them the satisfaction of letting them know that. I think we would be remiss if we did not discuss Eddie Fielder's outfit. When he first picks her up, he's got kind of a Mr. Furley thing going for himself, sans ascot, but he's got a nice, like, powder blue windbreaker and a yellow flat cap that he's wearing over a plaid shirt. And then once the jacket comes off, you can see he's got some yellow suspenders on under that. Definitely a working man look, but uh, he put some thought into it, and I appreciated that. Yeah, I'd say working man with a flair. I mean, you gotta go out of your way to get a matching canary yellow set of suspenders and a flat cap. Mm -hmm. Especially in Green Greenville? Greenberg? Town? Green... River? Greenville. Especially in Greenville, Ohio. Any other fashion you wanted to mention? Uh, just at the, at the very beginning as Patsy's setting out on her mission, which, by the way, I, I love the, I don't know, it had this like old-timey detective feel to it. And, uh, and her outfit matches that. She's got like a beige trench coat over a skirt and some beige pumps that go with it. And it, I don't know, it had this kind of... 60s feel to it i thought that looked cool i agree and and you're right about the tone of the comic book really fitting that with all of the handwritten captions where i talked about the handwriting in them but it is all first person narrative which does bring to mind that kind of like film noir detective type thing but it doesn't seem ever to be out of patsy's voice so it's patsy writing that kind of story for herself in her own language it's a subtle thing to do, and I think the comic did it very well. Mm -hmm. One other fashion note I did want to bring up. I don't think it's an intentional haircut, but the transitional haircut that she has as she is going from being the demonic cat from hell version of Hellcat back into Patsy Walker Hellcat, she's got a nice, like, bright red Joan Jett-style shag mullet that is super metal-looking and really cool. Yeah, very, very 80s rocker hairdo. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oof. I, I really like a foont, mm. which is a foot to the face. Sure. Foont. But I think the trifecta of left elbow, right elbow, and then a move that I think you and I made up back in the day, a wrestling move that we called the flying buttress, mm. which is where you 
jump and you hit somebody with your backside real hard. And those three moves together are whack, brack, crack. The whack, brack, crack is pretty good. I had as my contenders the aforementioned foont, and then the follow-up to that. Oh, uh, I think you said whack, brack, crack. It's actually whack, brat, crack. Forgive me, yeah, brat. That's a, that's the right elbow makes a brat sound. Yeah, I like that, and uh, I, I chose to imagine that it was a brat. Ah. Because that guy's a real piece of sausage. So if brat is brat, does whack become walk? Yes, it does. Oh. Yeah, I mean, there, Ohio's not really the Midwest, is it? Ohio's like a transitional place, because there are parts of Ohio that are definitely the South, and then there are parts of it that are more akin to the Midwest, but like Indiana-style Midwest. And then there are parts of it that are like Northeastern cities. What an odd state. Yeah, a lot of demons. Yeah, surprising amount of demons, I gotta say. Also, surprising amount of sea captains for a landlocked state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, the, the crack of that flying buttress tickles me. Pretty good. I'm sorry, the crock. Yeah, I mean, really to know what those sound effects actually are, we would need to know what part of Ohio Greenville is in. And oh. uh, really tough to tell. Corey, let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? I had two. The first one, I'm kind of on the fence about their musical style. It could be kind of old-timey music with guitars and banjos and fiddles and singing songs about stuff. Mm -hmm. Or it could be like uh, Dandy Warhols or Brian Jonestown Massacre kind of style of psychedelic rock. Maybe the name, you can help me figure out which, which camp they fall into. But they're called The Riddle of Josh Walker. Ooh, I like that. You know what I mean? It has that kind of like... We're not afraid to sound pretentious, so we can put as many words in our band name as we want. Right, but where on the irony continuum does that name fall? Mm -hmm. Are they the kind of pretentious where they want to sound pretentious, or are they the kind of pretentious where they just sound that way, you know? Uh, yeah, I'm going to put them, uh, let, let's say they fall on the continuum between the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. All right. I had a band, The Physical Projections. Ooh, that sounds good. It does sound kind of good. I'm not sure exactly what they are. Like, part of me feels it's a little bit on the nose to have them be uh, made up of, like, holograms, like when Tupac performed at Coachella a couple years ago. But I do kind of <laughs> want that. But because they're The Physical Projections, maybe they're a band that is made up of holograms of dead wrestlers. Oh, my. It's, uh... Macho Man, the would he be the front? Yeah, he would be the lead runner? vocalist. Uh, you got Rowdy Roddy Piper on bagpipes. Um, Steamboat? Tugboat. Is he still alive? Tugboat's still alive, and so is Ricky okay. the Dragon Steamboat. Uh, don't go jinxing those guys. Sorry, I meant Tugboat, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, and maybe it's just a two-piece. <laughs> Because <laughs> I can't think of any specific other wrestlers who have died who played instruments. I know there were a lot of them, but I don't know who they are. Hey, you got Macho Man and Piper. Yeah, that's a pretty good band. The uh -huh. Physical Projections. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also had 
This comes from a piece of dialogue that you did mention earlier, but I think they sound like a plausible indie band. You, 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 I thought sounded like it might be a band. It's a Karen Ozel band, right? Yeah. <laughs> Before the yeah, yeah, yeahs, they were you, 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 and they were more, you know, other focused. Nice. I got one more. I think these are uh, good old uh, soul music act called A Precipice of the Soul. Nice. Kind of sounds like the pompous of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe they're a soul band that just does Steve Miller band covers. Maybe they are. That could be fun. I'm, I'm torn as to how I would feel about that. I can't imagine anyone infusing any percentage of soul music into the song Abracadabra. But other than that, they could be pretty good. Yeah, I think that might be one of those artistic things that is so difficult that when it's done, you're impressed that it's done, but you still don't know why it was done. Mm, like uh, nailing jello to a tree is the metaphor I've always heard for that kind of thing. Like, wow, that was really difficult to do. I'm impressed. But also, why the fuck did you do that? Yeah. Kind of like the uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas remake. Yeah. Like, really well executed, but eh. That, that was how I ended up feeling about it. Maybe my least favorite Hunter S. Thompson book. My final potential band name, I think these guys are probably an emo band, The Nicest Boys in Town. <laughs> oh, boy. I, I mean, I don't have too much more to say about it, but I do like that name. We have pluralized names in the past. We've never done it mid-name, because the phrase that's used is the nicest boy in town. But uh, I think the nicest boys in town, that sounds like a band name to me. Mm -hmm. And I bet they're like an, an emo band. And I also bet they're assholes. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, what degree of irony is, is with that band? Are they like shoegazy about oh, I'm so sad because nice guys finish last and we're nice, or they're just, like, actually a bunch of jerks. I think both. <laughs> That's not mutually Yeah, I don't think I they're guess. being ironic at all. I think they think they are the nicest boys in town, but they are also wrong about that and they're assholes. And so it, it is ironic, but not intentionally so. All right. Well, against my better judgment, because they sound like a bunch of jerks, I do like the name, so that would probably... Get my vote. Okay, the nicest boys in town it is. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best in this comic book, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? I had two choices. One we already talked about a little bit, and it was just kind of a short, fun little quippy bit of dialogue between um, Patsy and Satan mm -hmm. when they bump into each other and... He introduces himself as a uh, professor of theology, retired, and she introduces herself as a clumsy person. Mm -hmm. I liked that as well. Patsy Walker, clumsy person. Yeah, very endearing. That was actually one of my choices as well. The other one that I had was, there was a lot of really nice flowery dialogue in this book. And my favorite of that, I think, is, this is one of the handwritten caption sections. He stood there in that form through which he first revealed himself to me, and he reached out. I felt a rush of cold fire as we passed like wisps of smoke through the dimensions. To hell. No. I just thought that sounded cool. Did sound cool. Some nice, like, internal metaphor in there, and uh, just a yeah, fun time. I also had a longer flowery passage 
on page seven, and it's 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 the beginning of the first interlude that we talked about, mm. where where Nighthawk introduces the gang to Hyperion. But it, it starts with this kind of a forest scene. Interlude. It's a serene forest, quite like many others, filled with nature's scent and song. But from beneath the earth, a song of man can be heard as well, as his machines gently hum. Pretty good. It's kind of Tolkienian. It sounds like almost. You know. Mm-hmm. There is also a section right after Satan drops Patsy off in an alley after their little merry-go-round ride. The way that he says goodbye, there's something that is oddly endearing about it, and I actually really did like this. His face appears in a puddle. Patsy sees it and says, y- You're still here? And Satan says, With repayment of the debt, the game goes on. I resume my preordained role and you yours. And if we meet again, it will be as it should be. I as the Prince of Evil, Lord of Lies, and you as a worthless mortal sow. (laughs) And then he laughs and disappears. But there is something about, like, when he has just revealed that he has a lot of respect for her and genuine affection for her, that it's like, and then we'll go back to our uh, regular roles. I'll be the devil and I'm super evil and you're just a worthless mortal sow. And then he laughs, but I feel like that's more of a fun chuckle of a laugh. Yeah, playing a part. I'm going to say something super mean. Haha. <laughs> yeah, the, the Satan guy, he's not so bad. No, that's a, he's very sympathetic in this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a real paradise lost. This is in some ways an easy category and in some ways a kind of difficult one. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. In this comic book, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst? I went with Patsy. As as my best. Okay. <laughs> you know, she got the vast majority of, of the airtime, but she, she did great. I agree, and I also had her as my best. It's the other category that was a little bit difficult for me to get a bead on, because none of the other Defenders did a ton in it, you know? And they all seemed to be fine. They all seemed kind of equally confused as to what was going on. I had a couple of question marks as to whether these are possible choices. Satan? I mean, he's kind of helping out Patsy in this issue. But he is still Satan, so even though I'm kind of coming across okay on him, he's still the devil, so I feel like he's bad. Yeah, he's he's making those guys push that merry-go-round. Yeah, it's a dick move. There is Eddie, maybe, for uh, saying Dr. Pepper in quotation marks. He's helping out Patsy, but if you're offering a stranger a drink in your apartment, don't put quotes around it if it's not something sinister. He also we find out does know her dad's location Mm -hmm. and he lied to her about that and then kind of went and hung out with him and had a beer later and said hey man this lady's looking for you what's up with that Mm -hmm. that's that's a little shady yeah that's fair and my other choice was kyle just because you know he's kyle and if overmind is his dick cheney that makes him george w bush and fuck that guy so by proxy we get kyle starting the iraq war under false pretenses I don't care for that. Yeah, I gave Kyle the nod for those reasons and others. Then Kyle it is. Bad job, Kyle. Corey, I got a question I gotta ask you. Uh Uh-oh. Behold or be gone. Hmm. 
So I discussed earlier that in a certain light, Nicholas Eblis could be seen as like a Willy Wonka type, at least sartorially. So Corey, in this scenario, you have pulled a golden ticket out of a Wonka bar. You get to tour this factory, behold or be gone, going on the tour of the Willy Wonka factory. You gonna go? Oh man, I feel like this is a little bit of a trick question with the, you know, what unfair labor practices and such am I endorsing by having this experience? But I gotta say the kid in me is pretty darn curious to go check all that stuff out. I can understand that. And like, there's part of me that's like, I mean, I got my faults, but I am kind of a rule follower. Mm -hmm. I might end up inheriting a giant chocolate factory out of this deal. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I feel like the first child murder, I'm probably going to say something and I might get myself murked at that point too. Uh, Ultimately, it comes down to when I was a kid, I went on the Hershey Chocolate Factory tour in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You ever go on that? No, no, I don't think so. Wasn't that good? It's kind of boring. And there's going to be so much press and attention paid to me when I get that uh, that golden ticket that mm-hmm. uh, I bet I could sell it for a lot of money. Oh. So I think, I know, it, it sounds very mercenary, but I think I would sell that ticket and just, like, get a ton of money for it and then not potentially get murdered or be traumatized by witnessing several creative child murders. And, uh, yeah, maybe missing out on inheriting a factory, but also then, you know, not having to deal with the labor practices involved in that and all the potential lawsuits as well. I mean, the other thing, too, is I like candy, but... I don't know, as oxymoronic as it might sound, my taste in chocolate is pretty vanilla. <laughs> like, I like chocolate, I like caramel, you want to put some hazelnuts in there, I'm happy. But the the new wacky inventive things that Wonka's coming up with, I don't like fruit-flavored candy in general, I don't see why snozberries would be any different. I think I'm just going to pass and uh, let Augustus Gloop's dad buy that shit off me. Mm. I'm going. Okay, well, have a good time and... uh Sorry about all the child murders you're going to witness. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's the assumption that this tour is going to play out following the same script of the movie or the book. Well, so you you think you would be able to uh, convince, was it a uh, Violet Beauregard to stop chewing gum? I'm just saying, I'm going on a factory tour. I'm maybe not even going with all those other kids. You're going with some kids and kids aren't going to listen, Corey. Those kids are going to die. Well... That's a, that's, a, that's a hard lesson. I guess so. Sounds like we got one behold and one be gone. Yep. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this book, what were the Hulk's rules? Hulk really took a page from uh, Patsy slash Satan's book in this one where, hey, there's no time for introspection like the present. Mm. Face your demons. If you keep fucking up, try and figure out why <laughs> and uh once you figure it out i don't know go celebrate with a bacon grilled cheese and a chocolate milk tough but fair i have a potential few lessons the hulk might learn one of them is uh you know when you're meeting a stranger maybe off craigslist or whatever pick a public setting for your first meeting i think that would be a valuable lesson for really everyone in this book to learn But I think that the lesson that the Hulk takes away from this book is a lesson that he learned from a demon. 
which is, there is a time and a place to dress like an old sea captain, and that time is now, and that place is everywhere. So, uh, <laughs> if you get a chance to dress like an old sea captain, dress like an old sea captain. Seems fun. Mm-hmm. And that's the Hulk's rules. Uh, face your demons, dress like a sea captain. Got it. Well, Corey, I have just one further question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1982, and the month of our Lord, September, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Mm. So uh, in early September, Wong was in L.A. visiting his friend and uh, famous musician, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, hanging out at the really big, fancy house in Laurel Canyon that Keith Richards was renting from a music manager, Skip Taylor. 4,000 square feet tutor, a bunch of bedrooms, on-site pub, all this stuff. And being as this was Wong and Keith Richards hanging out, they decided to see how much Jamaican incense it was humanly possible to endure in one setting. And so the way that they decided they would go about this was by placing several braziers of incense throughout the house and setting them all ablaze so that there would just be this impenetrable smoke everywhere. And not strangely, things went a little bit sideways. One of the drapes caught fire, and then next thing you know, the whole thing went up like a Roman candle, and uh, Wong barely had time to teleport their asses out of there before the ceiling fell in. And, um, you know, thankfully, nobody was was killed or injured. The press said that what happened was, uh, you know, somebody had left a gas fireplace on without the fire lit, and then somebody lit some incense, mm-hmm. and that's what sent the house up. So, you know, a little bit of a cover-up, if you will. But now uh, Richards and Wong had the joke that, uh, boy, if anybody knows how to bring the house down, it sure is Wong. Well, Corey, that is very interesting. I almost went with the same thing that Wong was doing for his Wong doing, but I gotta say, that's actually a different time that Keith Richards burned down his house. That wasn't in September of 82, the Laurel Canyon fire. That was earlier in the 70s. He burned down a different house in September of 82. This Oh, who can this... keep track with the Jamaican incense and the time and all of that? In 82, you know. he burned down his West Wittering house in England. Oh, that's right. He screwed up the Richards timeline with the house burnings again. Again understandable time is a fuzzy place these days Mm, it is a sticky wicket Mm. well that is one thing that wong was up to (laughs) maybe the other doing that wong was doing was spending some quality time with steve watching television see there was a show that steve was very very keen to watch that debuted on september 30th of 1982 and this was a show that uh Steve felt that he had had a great deal to do with. A few months before, Steve had met with writer James Burroughs, and Steve had regaled him with these tales, and he had actually pitched an idea for a show based on himself and the disillusion of his relationship with Clea. And so, on September 30th, Wong and Steve tuned in for a show that Steve thought of as the Sumner Sloan Show. Most of us know this show as a different name, Most people would call this show Cheers, but to Steve's mind, the show centered on a heroic character who was having a nice drink in a bar with his disciple-slash-love interest, 
And then he got busy and went and did something else. That character, Sumner Sloan, was Diane Chambers at the time love interest. And uh, he was a very uriodite, very self-centered academic who Steve identified strongly with. They kept the initials SS, but uh, changed it from Steve Strange to Sumner Sloan. And uh, he abandoned Diane Chambers in this bar, and she ended up getting a job there. And Steve watched the show, and he's like, oh, this is very interesting. It's odd that they're spending so much of the first episode dealing with these side characters, but I'm sure by the second episode they'll get back to the real story and see what this wonderful Sumner Sloan fellow is up to. <laughs> he was very disappointed a week later when the show did not return to center on who he thought of as its protagonist, but that is what Wong and Steve were up to in September of 1982. Wow, I had no idea. Did I tell you my elementary school music teacher had the classroom sing the Cheers theme song? No. As one of our exercises? Did you do the later verses? I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, blah, blah, blah. Sure, but the second verse like talks about like the coffee maker killing itself and stuff. No, I don't. I think I'd remember that. Have I told you that the opening theme song to Cheers freaks Lisa the fuck out? Yes. She gets very scared. And I kind of understand it because in a certain light, all of the old timey photos coupled with that gentle lilting tune does have kind of a The Shining vibe to it. Mm, a little ghosty. Mm -hmm. I remember watching the opening credits and trying to figure out which character the old-timey person was supposed to represent. And it's like, oh, the guy holding up the We One sign, that's probably supposed to be Norm. And I guess that guy with the hat, who looks all proud of himself, that's probably Frasier. I don't know who the rest of these people are. And it took me a long time to be like, oh, these old-timey characters are not connected with the show in any way, except for they're old-timey and they live in Boston, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they're all Woody Harrelson. Yeah, he, he posed for each one of those pictures. He's quite an actor. Oh, yeah. And it's odd, because at that time, that was his only role on the show, was mm -hmm. posing for those pictures. Yeah, old-timey person. And then they just had his number in their Rolodex when Coach died, and they needed a replacement. And that was when they brought mm -hmm. him in. Yeah. Old Cheers history there. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Good. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this issue of The Defenders. I had a very nice time doing so. Me too. We will be back next week with a new Teen Titans issue that is hopefully not a full continuation of the Who is Wonder Girl story, because we were told that would be done by now. I hope it's just a couple pages of whatever the gift is. Sure. And then something that's not that. What do you think the gift is going to be? Pocket Watch? I thought it would be more like an ability. Oh. Maybe she no longer kills cats when she's hypnotized. <laughs> that would be a very good present indeed. I hope that is what they give her. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're like, look, we weren't going to mess with your memory anymore, but we are just going to take out all of those memories of you murdering cats unintentionally. That would be a pretty mm -hmm. good present also. Oh, yeah. That's a heavy weight to carry. So, yeah, probably one of those two. In any event, we'll find out next week. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. 
We can also be contacted by a... Uh, by a? That's not a thing. By a spaceship. Yeah, we can be contacted by a spaceship. <laughs> if you're an alien who lives on another planet, why don't you uh, pack up your suitcase of all those apostrophes you're going to need on Earth and meet us here. Do you think aliens smuggle apostrophes onto Earth when they visit? Because uh, we don't have enough of them. Is that why all of their names have the apostrophes in? If that's just how they, like, uh, got them past customs and uh, onto the planet? Kind of like uh, getting uh, blue jeans into the Soviet Union in the 80s? Oh, boy. I don't think there's any customs for aliens. They can bring as many apostrophes as they want. All right. Well, they're going to flood the market. Well, they're going to use all their own apostrophes, and there'll be plenty left for everybody else. I would hope so, but it could ruin our uh, punctuation ecosystem introduce a mm. foreign apostrophe into it all of a sudden you gotta bring some you gotta you gotta no, bring no, some, no, no, no. some alien semicolons sideways. in to eat the apostrophes that's the mistake and then you gotta get some interrobangs in there to eat the semicolons where where does it end cory all, yes. all of a sudden it's just a bunch of i don't know bass clefs running around all willy-nilly in our sentences <laughs> yep that sounds pretty bad so so uh maybe don't contact us by a spaceship or if you do just you know leave some apostrophes at home bring an appropriate amount and make sure you know campground rules with the apostrophes you know can always go back for more bring what you're going to use but make sure you use all you bring mm -hmm. pack it in pack it out let me begin i knew you were gonna go to everlast <laughs> oh sorry that's okay i can hear that whistle now yeah now i'm hearing it Mm -hmm. Anyway, you can probably find us on social media, but if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, man. Reliving <laughs> those fun memories of that one time I was at a dance club a long time ago, jumping around to House of Pain. <laughs> that sounds like a nice time. I'm going to be catching up on some reading. I got a really cool book that's called Invisible Men that is a book about black cartoonists in the 40s who worked on comic books and is really interesting and so i'm gonna try to finish reading that while i am in your heart thanks guys for letting us in there yeah sorry about the loud music hope you can still concentrate on your good book <laughs> i'll be fine maybe i'll join you for a spell and jump around a bit nice it is a catchy whistle i gotta say i prefer the public enemy whistle but uh it's one of the top whistles in hip-hop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's up there. Top five, mm -hmm. probably. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There is also a lot of other content that is up there. There are a bunch of little videos that I made that are reviews of classic comic books. Those are available to all of our donors and available to anyone, whether you donate or not. I did a little piece called Hub's Winter Wisdom in which I uh, read some listener questions off of cue cards and reply to them and uh, try to share some of my wisdom with you. So if you want to check that out, feel free. 
But if you could make a donation, I would really appreciate it because uh, it is due to donors like you that we are able to keep doing the show. So if you want to make sure that we do keep doing it, maybe consider making a donation. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, what's a way people can do that? You can leave a review for the show wherever you listen to the show, probably. Yeah, I would imagine you probably can. What would be a review that someone might leave? I don't know. More useful than an alien suitcase full of extra apostrophes? Five stars. Mm. And we won't damage your ecosystem, probably. Well. No promises. I mean, that's not part of the review, right? That's just a disclaimer. I don't know. I mean, I think that would be a... Wait, we can leave reviews for ourselves? You haven't? Corey, get on there and leave us a review. Five stars. (laughs) Oh, I'm not eating my own dog food, as they say in the corporate world. That's the thing they say in the corporate world? Yeah. Like, if you're a software company, you should use your own software kind of thing. But you should be eating your own dog food? Yeah. I mean, you use what you produce. So, like, I should be leaving a review for this show? Here's a review that you could leave, Corey. I like this show better than eating dog food, regardless of who owns it. Five stars. Yeah, so that's a thing. Another thing, if you already left all the reviews you can, you're like maxed out, Mm -hmm. kicked out, just start talking to people. Yeah. About the show, preferably. So, I don't know, like, what's an example of how that could play out? Like, I just called my brother Hub. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Uh, hello? Hey, it's me, your brother Corey. Hey, Corey, are, are you okay? Usually you just text. Have you heard the show? Tighten up the defense. Uh, is, there, is there an emergency? It's great. Oh, man. You're gonna laugh yourself silly. Wait, wait, wait. Go tune into this program. Corey, you called for that? Yeah. Okay, I was just worried. It's like three o'clock in the morning. You could just text that. Oh, my bad. I'm, no, I'm glad you're fine, and I will check out the show, but you just really had me worried. Well, I'm sorry. Go drink some tea and go back to sleep. I'll check out that show. Th- thanks for the heads up, and I'm really glad that you're okay. We'll talk in the morning about this. Okay. Good night. <laughs> Click. It's just that easy. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe don't call your brother at three in the morning. No, 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 go for it. I'm just, I was just getting into character. Oh. I was going to say, I, I recall that going the other way. Well, me calling you at three o'clock in the morning? Yeah, or at odd hours in general. What did I say? I don't know. It's usually one of two things. <laughs> and it was, hey, thanks for coming out to see the show. Or, why the hell didn't you come to see the show? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Well, bye. Bye. <laughs> strong for you yeah if if uh if venom was going to drink a green tea would probably be this oh they like yelling at people i wonder if they ever did any covers of like old-timey pre-bing crosby songs daisy daisy give me your answer do do it daisy give me your answer i don't care for that
It'll rip your balls off. <laughs> Venom. I remember seeing, I don't know if, I can't remember if it was like a t-shirt or a poster or like one of those 80s cocaine mirrors or whatever <laughs> it was with, with their, like a, they have like a wolf with like three eyes or something. That sounds right. At a Kmart. Oh. In like Rochester, New Hampshire. I know the Kmart. Hmm. That was where we used to buy my underpants when I was a kid. Ah. I would also kind of like to hear an old-timey singer do Venom songs. This next song's gonna rip your balls off. It's called Buried Alive. <laughs> I think I would prefer that. I think I would, too. <laughs>